Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Praise the Lord to leave again, so just be in prayer. I know you've been standing alone, but Acts Acts chapter number 7 has 60 verses, so I imagine you didn't mind anyway, and I'm going to start verse 1 and end at verse 60. I'm not going to read all that. I'll start in verse 51. How about that? I'll start in verse 51, read verse 50 to, to verse 53. But I am going to try to get through all 60 verses. Not that I'm taking them one by one. No one get nervous. Amen. Acts 7 and verse 51. This is Stephen's reply really to some accusations that have been made against him. And he's coming here to the climax of his speech, if we were to call it that. And he's coming to a climax and he's really getting quite pointed with the people that he's speaking to as you can see in verse 51 ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears ye do always resist the holy ghost as your fathers did so do ye which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted and they have slain them which shewed before of the coming of the just one of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Amen. Tonight, just entitling this lesson here this evening, History Repeats Itself. History Repeats Itself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I come. Help us, God, in the next little while, Lord, as we look at the word of the Lord, God, that it would speak, Lord Jesus, unto us and minister, God, to us, Lord. I pray, oh, God, touch our hearts and our minds. God, help us, Lord, to glean, Lord Jesus, from the scriptures. God, the holy word of God, that it would find, Lord Jesus, a perfect spot, Lord Jesus, in our life. God, and will not fail, Lord, to thank you or praise you for it. In the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. The church say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Power hour at the church tomorrow night from 7.30 to 8.30 tomorrow night at the church. Amen. History repeats itself. This is a, this is a very long, very long speech. Not really if you were just to read it, but 60 verses in our English Bibles that are contained here. This is the longest chapter in the book of Acts, chapter number 7. Uh, some may just read this, and if you ever have read it, you may just read it and think, well, you know, Stephen was really just, he was just really given a recounting of uh, the Jewish history, a recounting of the history of the Jews and nothing more. But tonight, if you really look at chapter number 7, Stephen was doing more than just giving a recounting of Jewish history. Though he started with Abraham and seemed to work his way forward, He had purpose and intent in what he was doing. There's so much more uh, to chapter number 7. Because we left off in chapter number 6. And in chapter number 6, these rulers had basically made some accusations, though they be false, against Stephen. And they basically said that Stephen had blasphemed particularly four things or slash four people. Two of them were people, two of them uh, were things, so to speak. And they said the things that he had blasphemed is that he had blasphemed, you look at chapter 6, verse 11, that he had blasphemed Moses. He'd spoken against Moses, they said. Said, Stephen, you spoke against Moses, and you've also spoken against God. 
And then just a couple verses later in verse 13, they tell him that they have spoken, he has spoken against this holy place. They were talking about the temple. You've talked against the temple and you've, talk, uh, you've, uh, you've spoken against the law of God. And so with that as the background for chapter number 7, when we get to chapter number 7 and hear Stephen's long speech, verse number 1 clues us into here that the high priest basically talks to Stephen and basically asks the question, are these things so? Are these things that these accusers have said that you've spoken against Moses and God and the temple and the law, are these things so? Have you blasphemed against these four items? And so it's that question of the high priest then that spawns the answer that Stephen is going to give for several, several verses and the rest of the content so it would seem uh, uh, of chapter number 7 that he's going to respond. And he's responding partly. Uh, I think anybody would. If there was false accusation against you, you're going to go on the defense. And so he's going to respond partly, that story of the history of the Jews partly is going to be for his defense. But this is very masterful. And you may not be able to appreciate this, but what takes place in chapter 7 is the masterful working of a man that is full of the Holy Ghost and led by God Because not only is he speaking in terms of his defense, he is also such an awesome thing. He is also in the process of what he's saying, really putting his accusers on trial. It's quite peculiar. He's defending himself, but he's also putting these people of Israel on trial, convicting them through his words what they're trying to convict him with. It's awesome. It really is, and I I have read this several times in my lifetime, but uh, digging into it a little deeper just makes me in awe of God's Word all over again and how God can use a man full of the Holy Ghost with his speech in doing this. And so here he is on the defense and also putting them on trial. And he's going to start at Abraham. There's, there's really primarily three main characters he's really going to hit hard on. When firstly, it's going to be Abraham, and he's going to move over to Joseph, talk about him quite, quite a bit. He's going to talk about Moses quite a bit. And so he's highlighting these different characters in Jewish history But in talking about their stories in history with these three individuals in particular, he's going to show how there were moments of time that Israel, the people of Israel, the father, even some of the Jews, at times had rejected and accepted different things concerning God or other people who were supposed to be deliverers or redeemers for the people. Because many times in the Old Testament, there are Old Testament figures that can almost serve as types of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there are a lot of similarities of what happened in their life to what happened in Jesus' life that were just basically the outplaying of that in the Old Testament to massage our minds for what would actually take place in the New Testament through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Stephen uses these characters in the history of these Jews almost as types, their circumstances almost as types, to drive home a very pointed message to them. Again, this is a masterful speech. I, I almost put it up there thus far in the book of Acts uh, as, as Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, not talking about what he said after they said, uh, men and brethren, what shall we do? But the message that happened before that, which in my estimation was masterful as well whenever we studied it. And, and man, Stephen, just being led by God, smart. Because what he does, he starts telling these Jews their history, and the Jews took pride in that. 
Man, you start talking about where they came from and, and their family. Most of you do the same. Talk about your heritage, who grandma and grandpappy was, and he fought World War and all that. You start talking, start talking about something that they took pride in. So what does that do? They're going to lean in. Yeah, that, that, that's what happened. For, yeah, that, that's where we came from. You know, yeah, that, that's us. That's where we came from. That's where we're a part of. That's our history. They love that. But little did they know, honey, that he's going to turn the table somewhere along the line and use their own history as a convicting point. For them and their lives and where they are right now. So I'm not going to read all 60 verses, okay? I hope that was your homework last week for this week, all right? And so hopefully you've done that. But if not, then you might do it after you leave tonight. But I'll start where Stephen began, and that he is he began with Abraham. Now, what I want you to keep in mind tonight as we talk, as, as Stephen is going through these things, remember he's trying to show them that he's not against God, He's not against Moses, he's not against the temple, and he's not against uh, the law. He's trying to show them those were false accusations. So he starts all the way back with Abraham, and if you'll notice, and, and uh, they don't have all 60 verses all up there, but you have something right here called a Bible. I hope you got it. All right? You might want to have it open tonight. Look in your Bible, particularly at verse number 2, whenever Stephen is given his response he said, the, glory, the God of glory appeared unto our father. Look, he said, our father, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Charan. And so he starts all the way back at Abraham. Really, he starts back even at God. Because he said, the God of glory appeared not to your father, but he includes himself into this picture. He's riding right along beside them. Our father, our father Abraham, God uh, of glory, shewed himself unto him. And so he's trying to substantiate his belief to them that, hey, I don't have nothing against God. I agree that the glory of God came unto our father Abraham, the father of the Jews. And so I want you to know that I believe utmost in God. I've grouped myself with you by calling even Abraham our father. And he said, the God of glory has made himself known to them. Uh, whenever you talk about the glory of God in the Old Testament, even here as Stephen is in the New Testament, he's talking about, if I say it like this, the full panorama of God. Everything that God is, the full essence of God, all of the attributes of God, it's all encompassed in his glory. He said the God of glory had come down to Abraham and he witnessed all that God was, is, his attributes, and his essence. And here's what he says. He says, our father, Abraham, was told to get out of the Ur of Chaldees. Now, some of this, I don't know, this is history. But he said, God had told our father, Abraham, to get out of Ur of Chaldees. But his father, Terah, whenever they came to Haran, they dwelt there. They lingered there. They stayed there for a moment of time, and Terah even died there. And the Bible says, if you look at it in Acts, he says that God came and he spoke then seemingly again unto Abraham that he would get out from under this land of Ur of Chaldees, this fertile crescent type area, and go on. And the Bible says that Abraham obeyed and went on his way. He left Charan 
and went on his way and went out of the land of the Chaldees. Now, if you look at Genesis chapter number 11, you'll read in Genesis chapter number 11, it, it reads as though Terah gathered together Abraham and Lot and those others that were grouped with them, their wives, and they left and they went to Haran in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's called Churan, just the difference between Hebrew and Greek. Amen. But anyway, and then it says in, in Genesis chapter number 12, that the Lord came down and spoke to Abraham and said, I will bless whoever blesses thee. I'll curse whoever curses thee. You're going to go. I'm going to send you on a journey. You're not going to know where it is, but I'm just telling you to go. And Abraham obeys. But what it all comes down to this is this. Although Abraham, Abraham lived in an environment in Chaldee or Ur of Chaldee with his father, which was a pagan land. They worshiped false gods. They were, Abraham, when God found him, was an idol worshiper. Was an idol worshiper whenever God found him. Yet, he is still revered, though, in their history as the father, if you will, of the Jews. Amen. And so when we understand this, Abraham was going to leave everything he formerly knew, start on a journey to Canaan. Amen. Him and his family, but they only got so far to Haran, dwelt there, and then it seems according to Acts that the word of the Lord spoke yet again unto them to go. And then they went. Stephen is doing something here very subtle, very particular right here. And he's bringing it all home maybe a little later in his speech. But what he's basically telling them is this. Because in Acts it seems as though God spoke to Abraham to leave Ur. And they, along with his father, went to, uh, to, to Haran, stayed. And then it seems, according to Acts, that the voice came again, and then Abraham actually went. What Stephen is doing here is bringing back to the Jews this. Abraham, your father, my father, the first time God said go, only went a little of the distance and didn't go all the way. In essence, he was rejected to a certain degree the first time, but whenever he spoke the second time, they were totally obedient to go to the land of Canaan. See, he's setting this all up because what we know, and already let the, 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 the cat out of the bag, what we know is the first time Christ Jesus came, he's being rejected by humanity. But whenever he comes again, every eye shall see him, and they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. There's going to be an acceptance but the problem is the first time he came as Savior, the second time he's coming as judge. And so he's setting all this up. He's saying, you all, you're the father of us all even did some rejecting at the very beginning of the formation of the Jewish nation. And he, so he's just kind of putting that in there. He's chipping away even at the concept of the temple, if you will. Because the idea of the Jews in this day is you're going to worship at the temple, you're going to honor the temple. They had so much reverence and respect for the temple, they almost did more for the temple than they did the God of the temple. Mm -hmm. And so he's already, they thought, man, you can't do anything outside the temple. But Stephen understood, Isaiah understood, that God is bigger than the four walls of this assembly. He said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. In Acts, that he was quoting Isaiah. He said, where is this house that you're making me? See, the Jews had confined their God to the box, the temple. And so Stephen already right now is chipping away at this idea because what he's chipping away is this. He said, before there ever was a temple, 
before there was ever a temple in Jerusalem. He said men such as Abraham that were pagans were being called out by God to worship him and to serve him before there ever was a temple. Someone say amen. Meaning that God is not just bound to y'all's temple. But God was having his footsteps being heard in a pagan land, reaching for a man that didn't know anything about him. Someone say amen. And so he's chipping away at this concept of a temple. Amen. Calling Abraham out of the pagan land of Ur of Chaldees. He made it, of course, all the way to Canaan. And look at this. Abraham makes it all the way to Canaan. But the story on Abraham's life is this, that he never owned, he never had a piece of Canaan as his inheritance. The Bible says not even so much to put his foot on. The only thing that Abraham ever had out of the land of Canaan was a burial ground that he had bought of Machpelah. Amen. And so that was, that was the only part of Israel that he ever had. Yet, guess what? Abraham was still a man that honored God but he didn't need a building to do it. Didn't need a building to do it, but he still honored God. So much so that God said, Abraham, me and you are, I am, Abraham said, as we sing, a friend. Uh-huh, a friend of But he didn't need a building in order to endorse then that he had a relationship with God. Someone say amen. And so he didn't have anything else. All he had was a burial ground that he ever had, uh, that he had purchased and bought himself. And so when you get to verse number 8 of Acts chapter number 7, he's talking about how God had gave Abraham a covenant of circumcision, and he goes through a little line here. He's making a connection. Basically, Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. Man, the Jews are liking this story. Yeah, Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob the 12 tribes, because probably every single one of them that are standing there could, if they're, they're big on genealogies. Jewish are big on genealogies. Um, they're probably on Ancestry.com. You know, they're big on that stuff. Amen. Tracing where they come from, most of them could probably right in that moment when they said the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes, ones are thinking, yeah, I'm from, I'm from Issachar, or I'm from, I'm from Zebulun, or I'm from, they're already tracing back. Yeah, that's where we came from. Everybody's listening to Stephen. Everybody's leaning in. I can trace, oh, I feel so proud. I was of the tribe of Dan, so on and so forth. And so here is Stephen, though. He's masterful, folks. He is setting them on a roller coaster ride of emotions. Because while they're thinking so good, man, I'm of the tribe of Naphtali and I'm of this one and that one, he goes to the very next verse in verse number 9 and he basically tells them, yeah, but it's those very tribes, those 11 of those very tribes that moved with envy to sell their brother Joseph who would come to find out was their redeemer who would sell their redeemer into slavery. Now see what's happening? They're like, yeah, I feel really good about this. But then he takes them from up here to down here and say, yeah, but some of those people that are your kin are the very ones that sold their to-be redeemer into slavery. Someone say Amen you got to understand what Stephen is doing here. He's trying to get the people to realize. See, they thought there's a bunch of goody tissue, 
goody people that, 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 that was just real, real, just proper and everything, but they weren't accepting the fact that the Christ that came was actually the Messiah, and they had done wrong in that deed. And he's trying to show them through the scriptures in their own history that this isn't the first time this has happened. There were other people that were brought into their life as deliverers and redeemers, and they treated them the same way they treat Jesus now. That's what he's doing. And so whenever he does this, he said, yeah, you all sold Joseph into slavery. Now, the Jews, there's, this is the problem here in Acts. This is the problem. The New Testament Jews confused the fact that their physical descent, coming from one of the 12 tribes, they confused that because they came from one of the 12 tribes, being a child of Abraham then was equal with spiritual experience. Physical descent, being a child of Abraham, then was equal with spiritual experience. Wrong, wrong, wrong. There's many of them still yet today under the same umbrella of confusion. They think because they can trace their heritage back to one of the tribes, then it's okay with them and God. But that's not what my Bible says. Their physical descent is not equal to a spiritual experience that the book of Acts tells me about. Amen. The Bible even says, Luke chapter number 3 and verse number 8, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. Huh? Right? And begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. It's dealing with it then. Well, we're children of Abraham. We got a free get out jail card. Wrong. So don't you start talking about Abraham as your father, for I say unto you that God is able these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. What is he telling him? He said, you need to repent like everybody else needs to repent. Not only that, you need to be baptized in Jesus' name like everybody else needs to be baptized in Jesus' name. And you need the baptism of the Holy Ghost like everybody else needs the baptism of the Holy Ghost. There's only one door in this thing, and you've got to go through that door. If you think you're going up any other way, you're a thief and a robber. Your physical descent does not equal spiritual experience. Amen. And so here's Stephen. He moves from Abraham, and so now he's over here in Joseph. All right, he's over here in Joseph. And note what the Bible says in verse 9 of Acts 7. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sowed Joseph into Egypt. Look at this phrase. But God was with him. Who? God was with Joseph. Stephen's kind of, he's just, he's, he's not being so crass here to begin with. He's just kind of inching it toward him. But listen, guys, this is reading between the lines, okay? If God was with Joseph, but you spoke and did what you did against Joseph, were you not working against God? Huh? Now, you all said I was against God, but what about your fathers that you're so proud of in your history? What have they done? So here start the parallels. We look at Joseph. Yeah, he could be a type of Christ. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver, right? He was sold for silver. Christ was sold for silver. Joseph, in the process of his life of, of, of being in the pit and being sold and, and being in prison and being in Potiphar's house, remember whenever he was in Potiphar's house because of a, because of a false accusation from Potiphar's wife, it got him in trouble. Jesus, before he ever went before Pilate and all them, it was a false accusation that set him through the court system that got them into trouble. Now look now. Now, when, when the brothers, even note this, whenever the brothers were exposed to Joseph 
in the beginning, yes, they're rejecting him, but even reject, seemingly there's a, there's a rejection or a not realizing who he is. When they are first sent to Egypt, Joseph's now second in command. They're sent to Egypt by their father to get provision because there's famine in the land. They're among Joseph. They don't realize it's Joseph. Amen. He, 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 he kind of disguises himself to a certain degree. They do not realize, they do not recognize it is him. But look at this. But Joseph still makes provision for them. He puts the money back in their, their, their sack of food, right? He made provision for them at no cost to them. That was their first encounter, not recognizing who Joseph was. There's parallels in Scripture. Whenever Christ first came, he is walking and living among people that are not realizing who he truly is, but he's still providing for them at no cost to them. This is masterful. This is a masterful speech here that Stephen is doing. And so he speaks about all that, and he tells them in the Scripture, if you look at verse 13, he's 13 he says, At the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren. At the second time, he was made known unto his brethren, and they accepted him for who he was. Someone say amen. amen. And the Bible, if you note this, whenever he comes the second time, Joseph does, and they recognize him for who he is. They accept him. It's not long after then. They're going back to daddy's house, Jacob, and they're gathering up Jacob. They're gathering up all the kindred of the Jews, all the nation of Israel. And what are they doing? They are taking them, if you will, to a place to be provided for, which was at that time Egypt, taking them to a place to be provided for. I know that well, I'm not trying to stretch something here today, but the Bible tells us that whenever Christ does come eventually in his second coming, I'm not talking rapture, I'm talking second coming when he sets up his kingdom upon this world that we studied in our series on Daniel and Revelation. If you need reference, go on the podcast, listen to 24 and 34, okay? Parts of each of those, amen, and you'll get it. But whenever he comes back, the Bible tells us in Romans 11 that all Israel shall be saved. Meaning that all those that had accepted Jesus Christ as Messiah would be saved. We see that in the life here of Joseph. Whenever Joseph, they come to him the second time, they go back home and all of the nation of Israel that was there to be the nation of Israel at that time was saved as a result of recognizing who Joseph was. Man, Stephen just, man, he is weaving this thick rug, I'm telling you right now, for these people. Not only that. Joseph, whenever he was made second command to Pharaoh, Pharaoh named him Zaphnathpaneah, which means savior of the world because he was going to have everybody coming to bow. They were going to be at his mercy, his command for whatever they needed. The typology for Christ is that someday every knee will bow, every tongue shall confess. So he's weaving all of this. So he moves from Joseph. So what we have here, listen, is that here's Joseph to be a deliverer and a redeemer for his people, first time rejected, second time accepted. So he, he moves from that, now he goes to Moses. This is all of their history. They're familiar with this. They know these stories. So then he goes to Moses. And as he talks about Moses, you'll note, with anybody in the Scripture, there's something negative you could say about them, some mistake. Sincerely, the, the Bible lays them all in the dust as we all are as well, with all of our warts, flaws, and everything. But whenever Stephen starts recounting the story of Moses, he kind of steers clear from the negativity. 
He kind of steers clear from the mistakes of Moses' life. He just is talking about the positive traits. Partly, I believe, because he wanted them to know, I'm not against Moses. You all say I'm against him. I'm not against Moses. So he's highlighting the positive aspects of his life. And, and, and notice, whenever he even starts out talking about Moses, am I going too quick? Because sometimes I can get wrapped up, buddy. Whenever, but we got 60 verses. Whenever I... <laughs> Whenever he starts talking about Moses, notice verse 20. He talks about he's exceeding fair. Well, that don't sound like somebody that's against somebody, does it? Not only that, he talks about how Moses, in verse 22, was mighty in words and in deeds. I'm not against him, guys. Not against him. I'm for him. I'm not against him. Then we go on down, and the Bible starts talking about Moses here in around verse 25, that Moses one day, after he had been groomed in the courts of Pharaoh and in the wisdom of Egypt, that he went to check on his brethren one day, and one of his brethren were being taken advantage of by an Egyptian, right? And that Moses takes care of business, slays the Egyptian, puts him in the sand, and he basically tells them in verse 25, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And I even preached on this one time that had they been ready at that moment for the deliverance that God was offering, they could have been delivered then. And I, I tied it with another Old Testament scripture. But nevertheless, he said they didn't understand the deliverance. Because when he comes out the next day and now the two Israelites are fighting, he says, what are you all doing? And they say, well, what are you going to do? Kill one of us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And most like, ooh. This got out. What happened was this. What they seen the day prior, he came the day prior. Listen to me. He came the day prior, Moses did, as a protector. But the Israelites misunderstood his protection. Are you listening to me? They interpreted his protection as one that would also be trying to harm them as well. They misunderstood his protection. They seen it as though a problem. He was trying to do something, but he was really trying to protect. Guys, I don't know if I can do this tonight. Amen. But there are similarities with Christ Jesus, even in our real world today. There's a lot of things that Christ does that we think is some ulterior motive when he is just doing what he's trying to do. He's trying to protect us. But there's been a generation that has misunderstood the protection of the Lord. He's not out to harm you. He's out to protect you. Amen. And the Bible evidently was with God, was evidently with Moses, all right, the first time he went. He's with Moses. I mean, he spared him in the river. Had Pharaoh's, I mean, who better to get him out of the river than Pharaoh's daughter and say, I'm going to take him as my kid. What's Pharaoh going to have to say about that? God was with Moses, with him the first time he went down there as the deliverer, but Israel rejected Moses they said who are you to be a ruler and a judge over us but the fact of the matter is this what Israel rejected the first time God would send a second time mm -hmm. and so the you want similarities to Moses and Jesus well Moses in 40 year spectrum of his life was a shepherd we see Christ also illustrated as a shepherd the Bible says that Moses was delivered from among his own people. He came up from his own people, the Jews, to be a deliverer. Christ came up from his own people as the deliverer. Moses escapes as a child among all the other children. He escapes as a child among all the other children who are being slaughtered 
all right, spared, and he's protected in Egypt. Jesus Christ, when Herod sends the word and says, kill all children two years and under, they resorted to Egypt. Uh-huh. And he was spared among all the children, and his protection was found in Egypt because the word of the Lord told his mom and dad to get and go down there. Moses, who is in this palace, if you will, of Pharaoh, under the, the, the teaching of Egypt, he condescends, if you will, to come down to the Israelites to release them from their bondage. And the Bible tells us in Philippians, in some other places of Scripture, but in Philippians, how Christ condescended. And he came down, amen, to where we were, which was a much lower level, I guarantee you, in order to release us from where we are. Whenever Moses first came to the children of Israel, Amen. He's rejected. Whenever they talk about uh, the slaying of, of the man and hiding him in the sand, he goes off, if you will, into the, the, the land of Midian and he finds himself Zipporah and he raises Gentile children, as it were, from a Gentile womb. That's important. He goes to a woman and raises a seed from a Gentile womb whenever he's first rejected. Whenever Christ was first rejected by the Jewish people, what happens? The switch happens from Jew, and now the attention is toward the Gentile. He's going to raise a seed from the Gentile people as well. And again, a temple. God spoke to Moses on the backside of a pagan desert. Yeah. God didn't need a temple to talk to Moses. He met Moses out there in the desert where he was and spoke to him to be my deliverer. Now look, I'm hurrying on. Acts chapter number 7. I got time. Glory, amen. Acts 7 verse 37. I am going to read some of these verses of Scripture because Stephen, folks, man, he's off the starter's block now. He is in a full-fledged run. He about ready to bring down the hammer and all the nails. I'm telling you right now. And so he gets in there. He's talked about Moses. He's talked about all these encounters. And he says, verse 37, this is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. Like unto me, him shall ye hear, Moses said. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles. He's talking about the law, the Ten Commandments. Who received the lively oracles to give unto us. To whom our fathers, look now, our fathers, to whom our fathers would not obey but thrust him from them. What? Wait a minute. He says our fathers, our fathers thrust away Moses and the holy oracles that he was holding. You all have tried to convict me of being against Moses in the law. He says, but your all's heritage shows that your fathers rejected Moses and rejected the law. He says, in their hearts turn back again to Egypt, in verse 39, verse 40, saying unto Aaron, make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. He says, what you're trying to lay on me, let me push it back over on you and your heritage that you're so proud of. And the Bible says in verse 41, and they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and looked and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. 
Uh, Stephen says that Moses, and Moses said this in Deuteronomy. He said, there's going to come a day that the Lord's going to raise up a prophet that's like me, and ye shall hear him. That was a prophecy from Moses. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, that was a prophecy. And here's the thing. The people knew it, knew when it happened, seen it when it was fulfilled, and yet they still reacted as they reacted. The Bible says in John 6 and verse 14, this is where there's a feeding of the multitude that takes place with the loaves and the fishes, all right? And look what the Scripture says. The people grabbed that this was fulfilled in this moment. They said, then those men, when they had seen the miracle, speaking of the feeding of the thousands there with the loaves and the fishes, that Jesus did, Jesus did this, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. They're making reference to the old thing that Moses had said. Why did they know this? Because who else in history, I know God ultimately did this, but the person who mediated it was Moses. Who else in their history had supplied an abundance of bread and an abundance of meat? Moses, through the falling of the man, I know God did it, but he was the mediator of it. They were, that was the only tangible person that they seen that was orchestrator in it. He supplied much manna day in and day out for the Israelites, and then the quail, the meat as well. And so now they have somebody in New Testament Scripture. He's providing a surplus, if you will, of meat and a surplus of bread, and they're saying, when have we ever seen this before? This is just like Moses. This is the prophet he was talking about. This is like him. And so they understand that, they see that, they grasp that, and they still reject him as their Messiah. They still reject him as their Messiah. And so Stephen even points out here, he says, I support the importance of the law. Granted, yeah, Moses came down with it. Scripture tells how his face was shining. But our fathers, again, using that, putting himself in that, our fathers failed to obey the law. He even talks about Aaron and them making the golden calf. He refers them back to that story that they all, no doubt, can remember, maybe would rather not remember. But he basically tells them, our heritage is that we had rejected the law, we rejected the law while the law was being given. So, depending on me that I'm a rejecter of Moses and the law, he says, well, this here that you're so proud of, they are all rejecters of Moses and rejecters of the law. So we have Joseph, who was a redeemer, Moses, who was a deliverer. Both times they first make their way for Israel, they're both rejected. They come the second time, both of them, and they're accepted the second time. Similar to what is happening now in the present day with Stephen. First time they're rejecting Jesus. He says, but there's going to come another time you won't be able to deny him. One say amen. He says, you all, then what you're proud of is a nation who through the years, from the onset, have been a people of rejecting, accepting, rejecting, accepting, rejecting, accepting. Rejecting the true worship of God, rejecting God, so on and so forth. And if you look again at verse number 41, 
whenever the calf was made, even under Aaron's guidance, whenever that calf was made, the Bible said that they rejoiced, listen to me, in the works of their own hands. See, and that's what the New Testament temple had become for them. Something else that was made by the hand of men that they could rejoice in. It wasn't so much they were rejoicing in God as they were in something of their own hands. And so then Stephen starts following it up then even through the scripture. He begins to talk to them in verse 42 and talks to them about the history of their idolatry. Their history of having idols and of serving other gods besides the God. He says, basically, from Sinai all till the day that you were in Babylonian captivity, you have had problems with other gods. So what is that saying? You've been against God. And then he starts telling them, he said, we had a tabernacle that took place through Moses' time. That was a type and shadow for today. He said, but you all, look, the Bible says it was in David's heart that he then would build a temple for the Lord. God didn't tell David to build the temple. This became a desire of David's heart to build a temple. David, because of being a man of war, was not capable of doing it. He was not allowed to do it. And so his son Solomon built the temple. Huh? His son Solomon built a temple. God didn't ask for that. That's the reason why Isaiah, and we see here in Acts also, he says, where is this temple that you're going to be able to build for housing me? But what happened was you then now had an edifice that was created by the hands of men that they could rejoice in. And they would because there was never a temple like the Temple of Solomon. All the gold, the silver, the the embellishment of the wood carvings. And you know who did that? The hands of men. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're taking all this in. Man, we rejoice over what we can do. And when we look at it, man, it did stop then with Solomon. When Solomon's temple was gone away with and they came back out of captivity, they built Zerubbabel's temple. And then after Zerubbabel's temple, there was Herod's temple. And during this time frame, Herod's temple had been rebuilt, been reconstructed. And so we got this nice little temple here right now. But again, look at verse number 48. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. You're saying, look what we we got, but God doesn't just live there. Mm-hmm. God doesn't live there. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? And Stephen switches everything around. He's been talking all up to this time. Our fathers, our fathers. But it's just the same in any preaching. I can preach all day and talk about we and us, and that makes everybody comfortable. It's whenever I get toward the end of the sermon, I start using that you statement. Every message has to get to a place where it goes from we and us to a you. Because conviction is felt more whenever we get to the you statements. And so Stephen moves from our fathers and now he tells them, you, your fathers. Your fathers, look what he said. He said, you have been resisting the Holy Ghost. Your fathers have. And he says, so do you. When? He said, the very moment. He said, the very moment that whenever Abraham was called out of Ur-Chaldees and just went to Haran and stayed for a while instead of going all the way. He said the very moment that Joseph showed up as a deliverer and you didn't accept him the first time. The very moment that Moses showed up as deliverer and you didn't accept him. That's the very, those are the times that you resisted. Those are the times that you resisted. And that was your father's. Amen. He says history tells us that you have resisted the Holy Ghost. Man, that's hard to take, isn't it? 
It's hard to take someone and just come right up and just slap you right across the face and say, you know what, you've been resisting the Holy Ghost. But you know what, that's something that's awesome about the Word of God. Because what is it likened to? A two-edged sword. The Bible says in, in Hebrews 4, 4, 12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of a soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God is like that. So you know what this brought to the, brought to the people's minds? That accused Stephen of all this stuff and realized they were just as guilty? Concerning being against God, being against Moses, being against the temple, in some respects, being against the law. You know what they realize? Here's what, here's what we got to do. We got to admit that either we were wrong to crucify Christ or we got to crucify Stephen. We either got to admit that we were wrong crucifying Christ we got to admit that, you know what, he was the Messiah and we did wrong or we're going to have to kill the one who's saying we're wrong. Huh? Remember where Stephen started all the way back at the, the glory of the Lord. And if you'll notice in verse 55, talking about Stephen, after that happened, folks, there was no polities. They're ready to kill him. They're going to throw him off a cliff. They're going to throw, they said, usually two or three witnesses in order to take this place. Usually the first witness would throw a huge boulder upon the man after he had been cast over a cliff. If that didn't do it, the second witness would do, and then the third. And then after that, it was free for all, for casting of stones. And so after all this happened now, the Bible says in verse 55, man, they're, they're hot after him. And remember, here's Stephen. He's a man that's full of the Holy Ghost. Looked up steadfast into heaven and saw the glory of God. I think that's awesome. Because he started this whole story back at Father Abraham, which was the father of them all, the father of their Jewish nation, talking about the glory of the Lord had appeared unto Abraham, the father of the Jews. Right? And now, the same, listen, the same glory that was appearing to Abraham, the father of the Jews, in this moment of Stephen's death, is now appearing unto Stephen. And so I asked, did Stephen blaspheme against God then? And Moses? And the temple and the law, I think not. I think not. Because the very same thing that they had happened to their father, Abraham, was happening to Stephen right now. They rejected, they rejected those things. They rejected God when they crucified Christ. The Bible says, verse 55, that Jesus or rather that Stephen here looked up, stepped past into heaven, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. I've done a whole Bible study with you all before concerning the right hand of God. I'll touch on it just very briefly here since, you know, it's not 8.30 yet. said so he saw the glory of God and Jesus. Now, speaking of God and Jesus in the same verse does not mean that there are two persons God and Jesus. Does not mean there's two persons. Say, well, there's a conjunction there and. Yes, in the Greek, that word is chi. It can also be translated as even in the sense of this. That is or that which is the same as. Meaning whenever you read that with that interpretation in there of the meaning of the Greek word, the glory of God, which is the same as Jesus. You hear me? Or the glory of God, even 
Jesus. We're not saying two. We're saying a further description of the one. Amen? And for that matter, according to the rules of Greek grammar, according to the rules of Greek grammar, a definitive article that we call the the or the a that are in our sentences, the or a, a definitive article must precede before both nouns in order to indicate different persons, objects, or things. And it's not even in the Greek, but even in our English, there's only a definitive the before the glory of God and not the Jesus. So it has to be before both nouns to indicate two different persons. That is not here, so there's only one person. And his name is Jesus. Amen. From the balcony. Hallelujah. Thank you. With that being said, there is no literal right hand of God. Right? John 4, 24, God is the spirit. There is no literal light, right hand of God. You'll read, you'll read about the finger of God. You'll read about the nostrils of God. Right? There's no literal nostrils of God. There are no literal right arm or right hand or right finger of God because God is a spirit. Again, John 4, 24, other references for you, Luke 24, uh, 39, Colossians 1, 15, 1 Timothy 1, 17. God is a spirit, but throughout Scripture we get an understanding of the right hand throughout Scripture. We even see in the story whenever Joseph are bringing his two children, Ephraim and Manasseh, unto Jacob to be blessed. One of them is the firstborn and should get the firstborn blessing, rights, power, and authority placed upon his life. And he's guiding them toward the hands of his father to do the blessing. He has his firstborn in his left hand going towards his father's right hand and the secondborn in his right hand going towards his father's left hand because this is the way it should be. But the Bible says that Jacob, he, he, he guides his hands wittingly, the Bible says, and crosses them because he is putting the blessing of the firstborn on the secondborn because that's the way it was going to be. And as he was doing that, the blessing of the firstborn is always tied to the right hand. And the power of the firstborn and the authority of the firstborn is with the right hand. And so we see that throughout the Old Testament. Firstborn authority, power, privileges is always denoted with the right hand. And that's the reason why we can read, like in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Right hand, right hand on Jesus Christ because he is in a figurative type setting, the right hand of God being on Jesus in a figurative just so we can relate to it because that's where the power, the authority, the privileges through that right hand. Amen. The Bible speaks in other places of Scripture like Exodus 15, 6. The right hand, he says, your right hand is glorious in power. It speaks about Psalm 17, 7. Thou savest by thy right hand hand. Job even talked about it. How saving is by the right hand. We know that. See Jesus on the right hand of God. That's the power. That's the saving hand. Why? Because mankind would be left in a dilemma had not God manifested himself in the flesh and made himself a body. So the power is in Christ because a spirit has not flesh and blood, but it takes blood to remit sin. And so the power and the privilege and the authority is in Christ Jesus, the right hand. Because of Christ, there was a body. Because of Christ, there was flesh. Because of Christ, there was blood. And since there was blood, blood could be shed. And when blood was shed, comes a remission for the people, and that's power. Woo! Mm -hmm. 
You know what Stephen is saying? I see it all. I understand it all. I see the power that's in the man Christ Jesus. I see the power that's in the illustration of a Messiah. You all missed it. You're going to die in your sins without it, but I see the power in it. It's through Jesus Christ. He gave us a bloodline. He gave us a way where there was no way. Now that's our brief Bible study. We've already done that, but we, we talked about the right. I took a whole Wednesday night on the right hand of God. If you need a refiller, it's on the podcast. I can't stop and teach and preach everything ever. Well, we'd be here for a long time. But I will reference it. Stephen, similar though then to the Lord in his death. Look at it. Stephen says, receive my spirit. Christ had said from the cross, receive my spirit. Before Stephen dies, what's he doing? Father, lay not this to their charge. Where'd you get that from? Christ. Forgive them. They know not what they do. Very subtly right here in the end. Gives us a picture of a person by the name of Saul. All these are doing the stoning of Stephen. They're laying their coats. They're laying their garments at the feet of Saul. Who would, in the next couple chapters, become Paul. Stoners are laying his feet there. Remember? Remember? Stephen, even in the, the synagogues and stuff of Cilicia, I talked about that he may even had a confrontation with Saul. They could have... Because the Bible says there were some that heard Stephen and the spirit in which he spoke and they could not deny, they could not wrestle. And Cecilia is a place where uh, Tarsus was located and Saul was of Tarsus. He may very well have had some confrontation, biblical confrontation with, with Stephen and now he's allowing the garments of those that are stoning him to be laid at his feet. Do you realize then it's quite possible Quite possibly because of this whole scenario. And Paul, even later in his life, refers back to it, how he was consenting to his death. And yes, in Acts 22, they laid his garments. I allow them to be laid at my feet. You realize the type of impact that all this could have had on Paul, that it's quite possible that the death of Stephen quite possibly might have birthed a Paul. And I'll say this in closing. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. How is this possible? 2 Corinthians 12, 15. The Apostle Paul says this. Apostle Paul says this. The Corinthian church. He said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Paul has something lean on here. If you spend, you spend because you have purchased something. He says, I'm not only willing to spend, but personally to be spent. For you. You know where I believe Paul got this? From Stephen. Stephen was spent so Paul could be purchased. You hearing me? Stephen was spent so Paul, his conversion, the confrontation, the laying, everything he witnessed could purchase a Paul. So Paul later in his life says, I'm willing to spend and be spent for you. Why? Because it's that important that you know who he is. I'll exhaust myself. Where else do they learn this? Christ. Because in order for one to live, somebody had to die. Woo! Stand with me. I'm having more fun than you are. <laughs> 
such an awesome book. Read it this coming year. Someone asked me, you have any book recommendations? Got to read a lot of books. Yes, the Bible. <laughs> Amen. Read it this coming year. I'll try the best of my ability before the year ends. There's so many different ways you can read through the Bible anymore. So many different ways. I mean, you could be overwhelmed with it. I'll try to provide different sheets out there, different ways you can read through the Bible. If you just need something to be able to check off and you take it home with you and read through your Bible. Amen. I can't do that. You can. You really can. Have you ever, you, I'm not a reader. Well, get the Bible on tape or CD or something. If you are a reader, though, and you can, you know, kick off 50 chapters of a book before you go to bed at night, kick off 50 chapters. <laughs> kick off 50 pages in here. You can do it. Because listen, folks, this is the, Peter said we grow thereby. Right here. We grow thereby. And there's some awesome stuff in there. Oh, there's romance and there's love. There's envy and strife. There's war. Yeah. There's cheating. <laughs> Throw away your romance. I don't need them anyway. Bless God. Read the word. There's enough infidelity and adultery. Going, and adultery, adultery. Hey, I'm serious. There's dysfunctional homes and families. I'll give you some security for your life. Children being born out of wedlock. Some in wedlock. There's death. There's marriages. Bloods, famines, yeah, I mean, what else do you, this is a bestseller. On, I mean, I'm not joking, it really is a bestseller. A lot of people bought it, they just not read it. Oh, well, glory. Bless this Lord, Jesus. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's F-A-C-M-C. Thank you and have a blessed day.